Welcome to the Liberty Portal podcast by libertyportal.com, your gateway to a free society. On this show, we examine current events through a libertarian lens, seeking truth, cracking jokes, and providing you with better arguments to advocate for a freer world. The show is hosted by David Rand, political strategist and philosophy nerd widely known as the devil of Montana politics. Henri Pellerin, Liberty Portal founder and editor, entrepreneur, and fitness enthusiast. And myself, Joe Sheehan, filmmaker and Liberty Portal producer. Philosophy nerd, is that right? Philosophy nerd, yeah, I like it. What does that mean? Uh, well, I take philosophy way too seriously. That's that's what it is. Yeah, I think that'll be it. Seems like something a philosopher would do. <laughs> exactly. Uh, my love of wisdom is great. Uh, that, uh, how about that? That's perfect. Worth noting that you are the uh, state director of Americans for Prosperity Montana, and you are off the clock, and your opinions expressed here are yours alone and not those necessarily of your employers. Thank correct? you for that disclaimer. Yes, exactly. Okay. Thank you. Awesome. Um, also joined by Henri Pellerin. Henri here is 92% perfect, according to several anecdotes. Maybe we'll be lucky enough to hear. Uh, he is the Liberty Portal founder and editor, and I am your humble moderator and producer. Certainly the dumbest guy in the room by a, a long shot. So, uh, but most artistic. I mean, definitely. He's got the artistic IQ at the stratosphere. Perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps. You can see color, for example. You got that one over me. Oh, really? Are you colorblind? I'm completely, I'm so colorblind. Yeah. Yep. Fascinating. Yep. Uh. Well, maybe there's an inverse correlation between colorblindness and intelligence. Or autism. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I certainly think I have the, uh, the well, autistic. we're libertarians, so that goes without saying, right? Touch of the tism at the table, perhaps. <laughs> Touch of the tism. That's, that's, the, that's, the name, that's the name of the podcast right there. Oh, wow. That's... Touch of the tism. Speaking of names that it wouldn't be very politically correct or marketable. <laughs> Okay, well let's let's dig right in. So first show, uh, we're we're obviously getting into things here. Um, we've got a new year upon us. This very newly twenty twenty three and a heck of a year in in news and politics uh, behind us. Let's chat about some of the things that happened. I think we've got we've got Ukraine on the brain a little bit right now. David, do you want to kind of lay the groundwork for for why you think this was you know one of the major events in twenty twenty two? Oh man, why is Ukraine such a big deal? I think at least a big part of this is it is one of the best demonstrations of what I call a time slice bias, right? A lot of people are not interested in global politics, right? They're not interested in foreign policy. They're not looking at foreign policy as a question of the hundred year history that foreign policy actually happens at. It's, it happens at a different time scale, right? Now, I'll give you an example that isn't Ukraine. So we kind of de-emotionalize it real quick. You look at the rise of ISIS a couple of years ago. That is a direct response to something that happened in 1913, Wow. Right. And These, what was that? That's uh, the Sykes-Picot Agreement. And basically how after World War I, uh, we broke up the Ottoman Empire into the nation states that now make up the Middle East. Much of Middle East politics all come from that one decision. Sykes-Picot is a very specific historical thing that happened between two different diplomats. That's not important. The important thing is just what happened after that. Set these lines and these rules that now govern how Middle Eastern politics work. Everything from Gulf World War I to Gulf World War II, uh, Gulf War II. Each one of those are examples of the bounds that we currently have when we broke up the Ottoman Empire. So uh, equally, so if you just start off as like, wow, where did ISIS come from? Well, this year it was, wow, where did Russia come from? Why are they invading Ukraine? Isn't that crazy? That never happens. Countries don't invade, invade one another. And that's true. It's, it's very rare in the last 200 years that we've really seen a lot of countries just directly invading one another. Um, sorry, 100 years, not 200 years. Um, <clears throat> so uh, it, it, the story to that starts before then. And the best person to obviously look at this in, in the liberty movement is definitely Scott Horton. So go to him for your real foreign policy uh, opinions. 
But what, what essentially what happens is a lot of things happen below the surface on foreign policy in the intelligence state. And what the intelligence state has been doing, is what it appears to be doing, is systematically putting pressure on Russia through bottom-up revolutions in, in countries that border Russia for a long time while trying to cultivate in the, in the more visible sphere uh, an expansion of NATO to its borders. Uh, so consistently, Russia said, hey, stop doing this. Hey, stop doing this. Hey, we know this is you. We actually caught, got caught in 2014, I, I believe. Uh, no, that's not right. 2016 uh, with diplomatic cables being released, uh, basically a hacked phone call where we were picking the new government of Ukraine, which became, you know, this government, of Ukraine, uh, that that entire story, you know, got released to the press and uh, out, out, out and was debated. Uh, and with that, each one of these kind of straw breaking the camel's back become the invasion of Ukraine by Russia this year. And so for a lot of people, this was the first time they'd ever they'd heard of this. But if anyone who was walking around in foreign policy circles knew that this was a point of contention for some time, everything from Kazakhstan, right, had a, had a revolution really recent. Belarus had pressure from a bottom-up revolution recently. Uh, and now, and then Ukraine, of course, we have the Donbass and the story there. That, that's been happening for three or four years now. There were, there, were, there were peace accords in Spain, right, specifically saying that there's a, there's a humanitarian crisis in the Donbass. And yet we've all forgotten about that because Russia invaded Ukraine. So it kind of went down the memory hole and now that's become the major story. And, and that's true. We have to react to that. And that is a terrible evil, right? No doubt. Uh, but it's, it's an important component of, I think, 2020, what we're going to remember for, sorry, for 2022. And it's what's going to be, um, and I, God, it's, it's such a major story. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to unfuck the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. Like you said, it's it's not really a story of, you know, good versus evil. It's kind of, there's, everybody's, you know, bad on all sides of this equation. And it um, really blows my mind, even still, just the, the way that, you know, prior to Russia invading Ukraine, your average person on the street could not have identified Ukraine on a map. And within 24 hours, they were so effectively mobilized uh, to, you know, put up flags and, you know, change their social media posts and, mm -hmm. and have very deeply held, um, opinions that if you don't agree with this war, then you are a, an evil person it, that happens so quickly. What I get about the, uh, about the intuition is that if you haven't seen anything about this, all of a sudden you see a country defending itself from an aggressor country. I get that. I mean, and, and libertarians, we believe in the non-aggression principle. So it's easy for us to say, well, that's an, a violation of the aggression. It is, right? It is an escalation. It's problematic from many different points of view where we can condemn Russia and say, Russia, bad place. Putin, bad person, right? But justice is a larger question than just the nap. It includes things like, if you see a, a great example, this is, this is actually Murray Rothbard's example. You see a guy who's running down the street with a purse and you run and you tackle him and you're like, give me that purse and you take it and take it from him. And you find an old lady who doesn't have a, who doesn't have a purse and you hand it to her, Right. That seems like justice, right? Until you know that the, that that guy was actually had already just done exactly that to an actual purse thief and was trying to return the purse, mm -hmm. right? The slice of time 
gives you important information about justice. The facts give you important information yeah, about context justice. context matters. Right. And if the U.S. State yeah. Department never takes any responsibility for the provocation of Russia in this situation, we have failed justice. We have failed the test. Yeah. I, if, I find it so interesting, too, that there are so many reasons not to support Ukraine. I mean, I think their defense of their borders is one reason to definitely support them. Because as you said, non-aggression principle, they've got an aggressor state, they're dealing with it. But are they not the one of the most corrupt countries in the world by oh, some measure? Yeah. You know, I mean, Zelensky, well, while kind of looking like this really, you know, uh, resolute, altruistic leader, and, and I think in a lot of ways is being that for his country, has also just clamped down significantly on media freedom and has clamped down on religious freedom as well. So we're seeing him kind of execute a lot of these authoritarian measures under the guise of this emergency. So it's, it's another one of those instances where it's like, well, hold on, we need to actually clear away some of the, the fog of war to an extent. Some of the fervor just around, oh, we, we have to support Ukraine because they're being invaded to, to understand like there are actually bad things that are coming out of from the Ukrainian side as well. Mm -hmm. The, the, uh, there's a whole bunch of those things and you can point out those and, and, and poke at those questions. Like, uh, one of the best ones is before the war, the banning of the Russian language in Ukraine. Right, what's that mean if you're an ethnic Russian? That's a huge problem. That's a big deal. We would say that that's the worst kind of nationalism, right? So the, 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 is, is this guy a good guy or a bad guy? That's an uninteresting question. The ultimate question is, is what role does the U.S. foreign policy play in this? Should we be giving them more money than we gave our own war efforts in Afghanistan? Think about that. We're, we're, get, we're cutting larger checks in a shorter period of time for another country's military than we cut from our own military in trying to win the war in Afghanistan over 20 well, years. And I think it has to be said as well, as soon as we get out of Afghanistan, there's this new war for us to get into. Uh, you know, The military industrial complex is just thirsty for blood. And all the money that's, that's being made by you know, politicians and the, and the people who make the bombs and the weapons – yeah, at the expense of the young men who are fighting on both sides, um, it, it just that's never a part of the story, and it it's probably the most important part of the story. It's perhaps the wizard behind the curtain, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And, and, to, and to resist the idea of be, of appearing too conspiratorial, the military industrial complex isn't like uh, it's not. I love how the deep state has become like a word that people actually understand now, because that's been in libertarian circles for a long time before it went mainstream. And the military industrial complex is mainstream, but for some reason, there's a, a group of people who want to make it into a conspiracy theory. To be clear, listener, this is the most substantial theory that you could have when it comes to the influence of, of defense contractors on Washington, D.C. There's no doubt about that. This is the most solid, you know, case of corporatism that you could have. Now, it's the kind of corporatism we, that is justifiable constitutionally, right? Unlike a lot of other corporatism, uh, but it's still, you know, it is a perverse incentive. Uh, for Congress and for our politics, for sure. So you could say that there's a touch of the tism in D.C. as well. <laughs> Corporatism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is so, so such wide uh, advocate, like use cases, right? Like touch of the tisms. It could We're work. We'll talk about all the tisms. It could Tarianism. work. Maybe we'll have to outsource the naming of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure we can do it. All right, let's move on to the next thing. So uh, for item number two, David, uh, do you want to get us started on uh, Trump? FTX or the results of the 2022 midterm elections? Oh, man. Um, okay, so the political scientist in me wants to talk about the big, big story, right? Which is the red wave that didn't happen, right? So I think a couple of the things that people tend to miss is 
There are exceptions in the general rule that money wins elections, right? Trump is a good example. He got outspent substantially. But in general, what it wins elections is incumbency and money. And what we saw this last election cycle, I think across the House and the Senate, the one common variable is that there was substantially less money on the right than everyone anticipated. Why was that? It's there's a couple explanations. There's the easiest explanation, which is that the Trump administration, the Trump organization, the post-president Trump 501c4, c3, super PAC, you know, atmosphere, uh, organization. The machine, just call it the machine. Thing, you know, I can't remember exactly. The cathedral? The Trump, yeah, the, the Trump cathedral. The, the Trump mechanism machine ate up a lot of resources and then didn't spend it. So they're sitting on tons of hundreds of millions of dollars of donor funds that would normally go to Republicans that did not go to Republicans this year. Fascinating. So uh, Trump sort of pulled the water out of the pool for all the rest of the, the candidates. Right? Yes, in saying that these would go to these candidates, right? And there's there's been some great examples. Herschel Walker is one of the best ones where 80% of the funds that went to the Trump organization did not get spent in that race. No way. Yes. So the uh, Trump administration was part of it. The uh, second is uh, uh, Mitch McConnell and crew with the kind of more moderate Republican Senate leadership stuff uh, did not spend uh, very wisely and spent inefficiently, according to some people. Um, And there was a substantial effort by the right to make this red wave happen. But ultimately, if you don't have dollars, you can't get your word out and you can't you can't talk and you're not heard nor understood. You're not going to get voted for. True enough. So that that's sort of your thesis on why the red wave didn't happen. Yeah, that's that's I think the major predictor, right? Uh, the the other headwinds and tailwinds um, that I think are real, especially for libertarians to look at and think critically about, is right now people don't understand why inflation is happening. If we don't control that narrative or own that narrative because we have the truth on our side, <laughs> right. if we don't have that, we won't win. The reason why stagflation in the 1970s was solved with the Volcker Fed was because Milton Friedman built the intellectual basis for why the quantity of money theory and why the increase in the money supply was creating the inflation through artificially low interest rates and why we need a larger interest rates to suck up that liquidity and end stagflation, which created a short-term you know, crisis and then a boom throughout the 1980s and 90s. So uh, right now, that, that whole lesson's gone. Like, libertarians know it because we watch Free to Choose and we're nerds and we're weird. No one else knows this. So until we associate government deficit spending and policies of the Fed with inflation, we're con- we'll continue to lose, even as inflation is the number one issue people care about. So two things. One, I think I for sure need a, a nerd button to set off an alarm <laughs> when you go into libertarian jargon town, because uh, there's a lot in there. Stop me, please. Two, I think we need to do maybe a whole episode on the, the root causes of inflation and explaining it in, in a way, no offense, that regular people can understand, Yep, like, uh, like me. As the dumbest guy in the room. Yeah. There's also, I think, a misunderstanding about what inflation is. You know, uh, most people experience inflation as an increase in prices when, you know, the, the, I guess the Austrian economic explanation of what inflation would be is an increase in the money supply and the, the change in prices is, is an effect of inflation, but prices can change for many reasons and, um, I think this was the year where people started to care about this never-ending increasing money supply that's been going on for decades and decades, um, and even through you know the Volcker years and all that. And um, because they're finally going to the, the grocery store and they're seeing oh a box of cereal costs seven dollars, or you know my my milk costs ten dollars, or whatever it is, and and gasoline you know it's it just keeps going up and up and up and 
and those like Biden, I did that stickers. People are, are, you know, they're, they're waking up to it and yeah, I, I don't know um, how to like put a bow on that, but it's a, it's, it's a, it's a moment in, in time right now where I think people might be willing to, to listen to libertarians because we've been the ones who have cared about this for a long time. Um, yeah. Now's our opportunity that we, we've got a, a ready audience of people who now have a real tangible impact of inflation on their lives. And we have an opportunity to use this moment in time to explain why that's happening and hopefully bring people around to the ideas of what we can do to change it. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. I think that's a, that's a great, uh, great summary of those important issues. We've got, we've got one more item from the last year and we're saving the best for last year as libertarians. I think we should talk about the Libertarian Party and the rise of the Mises Caucus. I think I think you should talk about this. You yeah. know more about it than I do. Yeah, take it away. Well, I, I certainly don't know all the nitty gritty like inside baseball on this subject, but I I do think this is of all these stories, including you know in, inflation, the war in Ukraine. This might be the most significant thing that that happened last year. It was so the Libertarian Party is the third largest party in America. It's it used to be for a long time guys like us would not want to join the libertarian party we we would always distinguish between big l and small l because the libertarian party had just become another political party it was just you know these so-called beltway libertarians who don't really care so much about making uh, change in the world they they have their their position and they want to keep their their position in their party and and they're happy with that well after after decades of that not working the M- michael heiss and dave smith and these really great libertarians formed a movement it's the continuation of the ron paul revolution that was the introduction for guys like like us back in 2008 2009 and uh, brought us into the movement and exposed us to you know the Mises Institute and got us reading all these classical texts and inspired people like me to go get an economics degree and and you know that that uh, momentum kind of faded after Ron Paul left office and I think after you know t- 10 years of everybody waiting around for another savior to come along and, and do the heavy lifting. We finally realized, you know, the adults don't know what they're doing and nobody's coming to help. And, you know, we got to step into this and do it ourselves. So finally, for, for once, like the, the libertarian party actually represents libertarians. And that's, that's really important. That's something that, you know, I can get behind and you guys can get behind and, Hopefully the people listening to this can, can go, you know, go right now and sign up, become a member of the Mises caucus. And, or if you don't know about it, find out about it because this is an important, this is an important movement. And being the third largest party in America is, is no small thing. And it's, it's not anywhere written in stone that we have to have this uniparty system forever and ever and ever. I mean, the the Republicans were at one time a radical third party that had this crazy idea to end slavery. And, you know, we're this radical third party that has a crazy idea to end all kinds of violations of the non-aggression principle. And 
I think we have the truth on our side and we have the better ideas. And now we have the, the young energy, the, we have this momentum going for us. And especially as we enter into this new political cycle where, you know, in 2024, who knows, who knows who's going to actually be running, but you know, the rumor is that Dave Smith is going to be the the president, the the candidate for the Libertarians, and I mean, Dave Smith is basically, you know, a, a combination of Ron Paul and Joe Rogan. I mean, he's a guy that can. That's, know, a, great, that's a great way to qualify. <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's a guy that can that can actually articulate the message. He can he can excite people and um, gather some momentum around him, and he might be going up against a very split field. I don't know if it's going to be Biden or not, but who is not embarrassed to be a Democrat at this point? I mean, they don't really have any, you know, substance to vote for. They have they have a lot of emotional reasons, a lot of cultish tribal reasons to vote for Democrats. But it's yeah, if it's going to be Biden versus potentially a very divided Republican Party, Trump might run as an independent Kanye West is is probably going to run and and you you guys laugh but like he's he's got his supporters too. And if if it's that's sufficiently why I, that's why I'm, laughing. I'm sort of sort of terrified maybe of that actuality. Sure. I mean it, but if it's sufficiently split enough like you might only need 30% of the vote to win. Hmm. You know, and uh who was uh the guy I'm I'm blanking on You'll, you'll remind me, the, the guy that ran as a third party in the 90s. Ross Perot. Ross Perot, thank you. <laughs> he got 18% of the vote right. in 92. In, uh, right. No, right? He, he is a self-funder and spent hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars of his own money, which Dave Smith does not have. But uh, I get what you're saying. And that's in, yeah. in, a, in a split year, who knows? Well, Joe Rogan does, and they're yeah. pretty good buddies. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> I just might cut a, <laughs> cut a big check. Well, that's a little different self-funding versus getting it from your buddies. That's true. Still, uh, I, I have some thoughts here, and I to yes and into that. Um, so one thing, as far as a defense, I think, I think the difference between Beltway and outside Beltway libertarians isn't that Beltway libertarians are not interested in change. I think what they're interested in, more so than fe- folks who are more in the states outside of D.C. and outside of the media, is they're more interested in looking good good representation of their ideas. They want to they want to be seen as a legitimate form of dis, of as a, part, a legitimate form of the discourse, which I totally understand. There's a there's a value there that everyone's actually shooting for. If the Mises Institute could be taken more seriously, they would they would take the thing that would allow them to be taken more seriously. That said, being a a minority means you are outside the norm, right? We have a lot of ideas that a lot of people do not understand. Right. So there's there's a tension there between people who prioritize first looking good and second the ideas and people who prioritize first the ideas and second looking good. And thankfully, we have Joe so he can make us look good. And we got all ideas that you that you can that you can articulate so that we can kind of come to that place where we're trying to split that mean of persuading people into our camp, Uh, because that's what we ultimately both of. Right. We made both to uh, to be a part of the acceptable range of discourse and to bring more to bring more people in, and we have to have the ideas that compel people, that excite people, that get people you know desiring to use their time, resources, and effort to advance alongside of us. Totally. Um, yeah, you know, I actually just working off of that, David. I recall the energy that I felt when I first kind of got talked out of my sort of maybe mainstream conservative Republican views that I kind of inherited from my parents and became truly my own political entity in terms of the way that I felt that, you know, the ideals and, and uh, visions that I had. 
and became a libertarian. And it was all around the Ron Paul movement. I mean, it was so captivating and so easy to be a part of. And the interesting thing about the Mises caucus right now is that it's the first time since then that I've actually felt like that energy is back. Mm. And I think that has the potential not only to pull people like disaffected Democrats, disaffected Republicans, folks who are tired of Trump or just can't imagine voting <clears throat> for Biden for a second term into a camp of people who are also you know, disenchanted with the current political environment that we have, this gridlock in Washington or just these like wacko policies or foreign wars or incredible inflation and bring them into a new a new place that can inspire them like it inspired me 10 years ago. What I would like to see, especially in the LP, is is I love what the Mises, Mises Caucus is doing in terms of trying to put forward a more foreign policy focused LP, a more uh, monetary policy focused LP. That is awesome. And I love it. I don't know if their Twitter game is making things worse or better. Yeah, right. I'd agree with that. Yeah, that's a question. I, I, I think memes are great, but I don't know if it if it's great for coming from a major party. Maybe, maybe not. You know, yeah. or how often they are. Or how I think I think a lot of the people who are around the the Mises Caucus movement are are noticing that as well. Mm -hmm. I think there's room for improvement, and probably you know things will get better mm -hmm. eventually. But I also you know I would like to go back to something you said a moment ago, David, about the the Libertarian Party. Uh, the people who have been running it for the, you know, since the the seventies when it was uh, instituted, you know, are, are trying to legitimize themselves. I mean, that is the wrong game to play in the first place. Like we do not care about being legitimate to the people who think Joe Biden is a legitimate president. I mean, this guy doesn't even have two brain cells to rub together and I don't care what they think about us. I, I want to shake the box and, you know, touching on something you just said a moment ago about reaching out to um, disaffected liberals and, you know, perhaps uh, disaffected Republicans. I think one of the things that Trump did that was made him a successful candidate is he got people to vote who hadn't voted in their entire lifetimes. And, and that is really, you know, the... The, the candidate that wins every election is didn't vote because most people don't vote in the elections. Most people don't like the options, but we can present a, a real path forward of ending the Fed, ending these endless forever wars and really upholding the non-aggression uh, non-aggression principle. That makes sense to a lot of people. For sure. And actually on that too, I think that you know, maybe even transitioning into our predictions for the coming year, I think that as a result of what we've seen over the last few years is going to mean that more party politicians leave their parties. I mean, we've seen Kirsten Cinema and Tulsi Gabbard both leave the Democratic Party to become independents. I don't know that we've seen any on the Republican side. I mean, I guess we saw Justin Amash mm -hmm. leave the Republican Party years ago to become a libertarian, the first sitting libertarian in Congress, which is awesome. Um, I think that's my main prediction for 2023 that we're going to see more, you know, disaffection uh, from major parties, perhaps into the libertarian or just independent. What do you guys think? I'll give I'll give it to David there. Pass the football over. I don't know, guys. A couple. He's things. a party politician. <laughs> he, 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 he that's not that. <laughs> I mean, so I've I've worked. I've worked for the Republicans, for example. I uh, I I've worked on the inside of this stuff. I've been to D.C. I've worked on the Hill. I've done all that. So. Um, not to say that I'm like elite in those circles at all. I'm not even you close. You certainly know more than me. Yeah, but the um, more, most people vote 
against the other party than they vote for their party. Fear sure. motivates most votes, right? So it isn't that Biden is well supported. It's that Donald Trump is greater, more feared. No doubt about it. Does that make sense? So the the question of the third party is getting to the place where people are so desperate <laughs> of fearing the other two candidates or so confused about who's most likely to win and to throw off that calculus of 30, 30, 30, that they can get to a, a majority. Uh, and then lastly, money. He takes money. money. And we're talking the scale of money, guys. It's not close. The operating budget of the RNC is several orders of magnitude larger than the entire presidential campaigns for LP president. For the that's last decade. That's just their yearly <laughs> annual budget. That's just covering payroll. It's well, not way to even dash our libertarian well, I know, hopes okay. and dreams. Well, I, no. I just I just think the likelihood of a libertarian <laughs> presence is very low. And, and that for the most part, it's an education opportunity, and an education campaign. And in fact, I think that's actually what the Mises caucus was. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm, on. I'm very much like an optimist, so yeah. I, I wouldn't rule out anything. But I agree, like we have to have a very long term strategy here. It's 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 a multi generational uh, program. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you're you're right about that. And but also, we don't have to win the election to influence the election. We, we could we could get enough people who are interested in our ideas that the Republicans or the Democrats have to then adopt some of those ideas. Totally in fact, the strategic use of libertarian candidates is the best lever the LP has. And that's one thing I have to be very complimentary of, and we're based out of Montana. The Montana LP has done an exemplary job of that very phenomena of uh, of. Uh, endorsing candidates that they are not libertarian, right? That's that's great because in the in, I think in the previous leadership of the LP, they might have said, "Well, they have an they have the L next to their name. That's good enough. We're just excited to have find found someone for that office." And two, uh, specifically praising Republicans who come their way and Democrats who do good things. That the idea in politics, if you are somebody who can never come to the table to be negotiated with, if you're always right and you have nothing else to give on in order to advance your agenda, then no one's ever going to play ball with you. And if totally. no one plays ball with you, you can never advance your agenda beyond the current political power you have. Totally. As soon as you're able to negotiate with somebody and say, hey, I won't put a candidate here if you have this policy position, you have now entered into a sphere where you can exercise influence. Until then, you don't have any. Totally. And, yeah. well, and I think that's been the biggest like um, sort of issue holding the LP back is that there's this ideological purity test that if you don't check all the boxes of what a real libertarian is, we can't support you. We can't work together. And to me, I, maybe the Mises caucus is a step in the other direction on that where, Hey, like if we do agree on foreign policy or we do agree on economic issues, we can actually form these coalitions, support candidates and actually start to play, play the game. Uh, so uh, a good example, if the LP of Georgia had said, Hey, Herschel Walker, I want you to be 10 times more foreign policy, America first. And we way less interventionist. If you hold to that, you will never have an LP candidate against you. And then yeah. executed on that. He would be a senator right now with a huge debt to the LP. That's true. That's totally. way more power than the LP currently has. Now, there are a lot of things you can't control in there. Like, for example, our election laws don't allow, if someone registers and puts the num- number down and puts LP next to their name, then they're an libertarian candidate. As far as Montana, I don't know how Georgia works. Other states have more control with their caucus systems to like say, no, you're not one of us. Uh, we have no free, free, association, free association rights in Montana uh, of, the, of that nature. So, Different different uh, states have different powers. You have different limitations too. For example, we could never do that with governor, 
right? The LP can't do that in Montana because they always have to run a governor candidate because that's the way the Montana statute works. They have to have a certain amount of percentage of the governor's race. That said, if the LP was smart, what they'd be doing is going to legislators right now saying, hey, would you like to not have a libertarian in your governor's race next year? Change this piece of code so it says any statewide office. And then they can have that. Hope you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. So uh, I want to... Yeah, pro tips. Pro tips <laughs> we gotta, David. We got to talk about Speaker of the House. I was just going to say, I, I need to know more yes. about this because I know this is like right in your whole wheelhouse oh, and it's man. just been chaos. Process. Let's talk about process, guys. The sexiest thing in politics legislative process. I think I'm going to go use the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) So rules. All right, get this. Guess when was last time the federal government passed a budget, an actual budget where they said, here's the amount of money we have. Here's where we're going to spend and move that money to. When was the last time that happened? Was it the 90s? Pre-Civil War. Oh, huh. you got <laughs> Somewhere in between those okay, two right, I shouldn't have asked libertarians that because you're like, never. Well, I'll give you a, to say the date, I'm, I'm spaced on the date right now, but I do remember the anecdote before the invention of the iPad. Oh, so like 09 yeah. or 10. Yeah, I think it was 2006. That recent, huh? Yeah, so all those all the big, big spending in the 90s is actually done with the budget but that was what was interesting about it is because you had 28 bills each with different parts of the government that you were voting for and against right so you actually had debate you had amendments on the floor right so okay so remember how things become a law right you go to you first you have an election you anoint leadership leadership picks committees committees then introduce bills. You introduce a bill committee and you can amendment and committee what's usually called executive action. During that process, you vote, bills that pass committee go to floor. At floor, you can also have amendments, right? But they have to pass a majority and the, and the threshold's usually higher. And it's just, you, you just kind of waste people's time if you do amendments that aren't going anywhere and you can run into problems with your leadership. Until Paul Ryan, you could do amendments to the floor. Throughout all of congressional history from 1779 or whatever where the first Congress is to uh, till then. And we haven't done one since. So that was what what? was on the table for this speaker election. Can you do amendments? Do you have a budget process? (laughs) How should Congress run? Can you you, you explain that? Because there's a gap between we don't do that or we haven't done that since Paul Ryan and that's what's on the table. Why, Why was it done away with and why was it back on the table now? The speaker controlled the process. Right. Nancy so Pelosi it, wouldn't allow yeah, amendments on no, the floor. No, they didn't they didn't and they didn't get amendments from the floor on this, right? They got way easier things to get like the Republicans are going to pose they're going to do immigration control or something like that. Budget budget control. No, sorry, border control. And they're doing some stuff on the budget which is good, but they're still not requiring an actual budget from the president. Right? It, how it used to work is that the president would say, "Here's here's a budget." And then the House would then pick up that budget, modify it, send it to the Senate. The Senate would modify it. It would go to conference committee, and then it would go, go to be signed by the president. We haven't done that since 2006. And, and, and we should do that, right? And <laughs> the, the other side of that, uh, as far as for amendment votes, and I'm spacing the year, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Paul Ryan. Basically, what happened is you can no longer effectively do amendments from the floor unless there's a majority vote. And what that has pretty much meant is that there's no more amendments from the floor where it used to be any member who wants an amendment can bring it to the floor. So just for my own edification, because it's obvious I'm, I'm still missing something here. Nancy Pelosi wouldn't allow amendments from the floor. Mm -hmm. And so with her stepping out and a Republican majority coming in, they have the right to vote to elect a speaker. Mm -hmm. Kevin McCarthy was the 
the, you know, presumed elected uh, speaker, right? But there was dispute within the Republican Party over whether or not he should be the speaker. Was was this amendment issue at the root of whether or not, yes. like why certain Republicans did not want Kevin McCarthy to be the speaker? Yes. The founding of the Freedom Caucus, as much as it was about fiscal restraint and all these other things that the Freedom Caucus was about, it was about process. It was about how do we turn Congress into something that works like Congress again, into a democracy again. Because right now how it works is everything is put into what's called continuing resolutions or omnibuses. Omnibuses are basically cramming everything that you want, every policy that you would pass in a fiscal year in different bills into a singular bill in a giant thing that's all organized by Congress, or by by leadership, and then rolled out to the floor with you know 24 hours notice. Right, and it's like 4,000 pages and you can't read it. And that's right, you hear that. That happens. That used to be an exception. Now it's the only thing we pass. We rename bridges and we do omnibuses. That's it, right? And that's that's how broken Congress is. So the the all, I mean the and I th- and I have criticisms of some of those guys in this sense that it seemed like there wasn't as much consensus as they could have had on exactly what they wanted changed. They said we want a real budget process and we will vote no until December of 2024, <laughs> right? In order to get it, then that's what we're going to do. Right, because it's insane that we haven't passed a real budget in that long time. Totally. It's insane that in Congress, or the most, you know, a deliberative body, that there's no debates ever, ever. Right, the only time we've had a debate in the last two years has been over the speaker, right? <laughs> yeah. Which, in some ways, is a good sign. It's a good sign. That's a, that's a return of my, okay. So, all right, oh man, oh man. Okay, so the idea that you got people who are all worried about the state of democracy, who are like, why didn't they just pick Kevin McCarthy right off the bat without any debate? That's the same person. Think about that for a second. You have exactly the same person who said, oh man, the democracy is dying because of Donald Trump, but they should just select the speaker from behind closed doors and come out and do a token vote and, and move along. The same person hold both of those opinions at the same time. That, it blows my mind. Welcome to modern politics. <laughs> yeah. oh, man. I hate that. That is wild. Sorry, I mean, it does name. illustrate how broken the system is and maybe why so many people are also just disaffected from politics in general let alone a party or another, right? Like why do people not vote? Well, because they see that this stuff happens all the time, regardless of whichever party is in power, R or D doesn't seem to make much of a difference. Does it's it? a constant clown world. Like who wants to participate in that? What's funny is it's not, it's, 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 it's gone from a place where the clown world is all in the media, right? And none of it happens where it should happen, which is on the house floor. Right. What's interesting? So it's great. If you if you look at all the Speaker McCarthy stuff, you'll see them kind of walking up and talking to each other on the floor. Like there was this long video of Matt Gates talking to AOC. Yeah. And I was like, wow, they talk to each other. <laughs> wow. On Twitter's losing its mind about it. It's like, well, of course they do. They're they're part of the same deliberative body. That should be normal. But we never see that. You know why? Because C-SPAN loses control of the cameras as soon as the speaker's chosen. There is no speaker, so C-SPAN gets to film what they want. Why does C-SPAN lose control once the speaker's chosen? That's that's the House rules. So we can't see inside of the House yeah, as right. the public. You never see these things. One, because Congress never gets together, except for on you know State of the Union type stuff. Uh, they, they, they don't go to the floor all at the same time. They don't b- debate bills all at the same time very often. I mean, they, they do go to the floor very often, but you don't see those sorts of things. You, what you see is a focus on the, the gavel and things like that, because that allows them the space to sit behind the scenes and talk about stuff 
in normal civil fashion. That actually does happen. That's why Congress, that's how Congress works, right? But we never show that because what they need to fundraise is this is the most evil party that ever existed. And we have to never let them get a single win. And if we do, we've failed the Republic. And so if they're seen talking to the most evil party that ever existed, well, you talk to evil people? Exactly. (laughs) And then it sets an expectation of what democracy should look like. And then if people, and it fails that expectation consistently because people don't see this stuff happen. And then we wonder why there's gridlock in, in Congress. Well, we've created it. There it is. We've just solved all the problems of the world, you guys. <laughs> Here and now. Did we want to talk about uh, Elon taking over Twitter at all? Sure. Yeah. We can talk sure. about whatever we want, man. We have the mics. Yeah. Well, like, I guess they're, this they're, is Joe Rogan style. We're doing it three hours. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> You guys, are you guys? Yeah, uh, let's talk about it. You know, happy about it, or you think that it's it's gonna make a difference in the long run? I think it's demonstrative of an idea that it's easy to fall into when you're a free market guy. So in free markets, what we tend to say is that free markets are more efficient, but we don't necessarily say that they necessarily always have the outcome that I would prefer. Right. So I might say that free markets are efficient, and you know, but hate Toyotas, and then see that Toyotas outside outsell Ford. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right. So. In general, we don't want to make an argument as free market supporters that says everything will be better and always universally supportable by me if we have freedom, right? But this is a great example <laughs> of a state of freedom self-equilibrizing, like where where things were really corrupt in a bad way that was very obvious to a lot of people. And that created a, a, the, the kind of momentum to allow a person to say, hey, I will get a lot of social credit for solving a social problem with my own dollars. And then going out and doing that and getting a lot of social credit for it, right? There's a reputational system thing in that. That's very much free market. That isn't necessarily what happens, but it's the best alternative to regulation, obviously. Totally. Yeah. So. I wouldn't necessarily agree though that he his reputation has improved as a result of owning Twitter. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who probably sold stock in his companies because they disagree with the way he's approached owning Twitter or perhaps the narrative of what's being told in the mainstream media about what is happening as a result of him owning Twitter, you know, all the racist mm-hmm. Nazis coming out of the woodwork to celebrate their, uh, their freedom or whatever, you know, him putting Trump back on there, I'm sure was not very pleasing to Democrats. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a really interesting thing. It's quite a spectacle. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly more engaged on Twitter now than I was before because, well, I couldn't really say much on Twitter before without the risk of, you know, probably being, put on some FBI list, right? Not right. that I'm not already on some FBI list. <laughs> Will be after this thing comes out, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, it was great to see, you know, the veil lifted a little bit with the Twitter files and and get a, a validation of something I think we probably all suspected was true all along, that there's a lot of collusion behind the scenes and um, text censorship and all that. Um and voices being suppressed and stories being covered up and other stories being amplified. I mean, it was the reason I did get off of Twitter for a long time and I happen to be back on it now with Liberty portal and it's only, it's been a short while, but it's, it does feel like a little bit more like what I think Twitter used to be originally, which was supposed to be like the free speech wing of the of the free speech party and all that. Um, so it seems, it seems like a, a net positive, you know, nothing is, is all good or all bad any, any time, but I'd say it seems to be a a net positive. It'll be interesting to see if Elon can turn Twitter into a profitable company. I think there was, uh, 
there's a lot of speculation around that. And it, it could be, it has been as like an entrepreneur, a lot of, a lot of lessons learned, you know, coming in, doing the new CEO move and firing all these people and getting rid of, you know, the dead weight and keeping the people who are willing to work around the clock and watching the less reaction to that is, has been pretty comical as well. Um, but yeah, we'll see, we'll see how it all plays out. Yeah. I mean, I, I find it a much more entertaining place now. I like it quali qualitatively. I see more things that I want to see. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much there. One of the things that I think is, uh, especially interesting returning to, uh, one of my first points about the intelligence agencies is how much the FBI and former CIA and people of that ilk were involved directly or indirectly with either being employed by Twitter or having direct portals into Twitter. Uh, in the 1970s, there was a program called Project Mockingbird, which said, uh, you know, specifically in trying to manipulate American media in support of and to minimize opposition to the war in Vietnam. And, it, 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 you know, we know about it now, but at the time, of course, it just looked like CBS just covering the news. Uh, we now know that that program functionally never ended, that it moved, migrated to the FBI uh, and that the FBI was functionally doing that at Twitter over COVID and probably maybe over the war in Ukraine. I mean, think probably, about that. Probably That's, a lot of things. So, so like when you, yeah. when you say like, does this deserve regulation? It's like, well, how about we regulate the FBI and not allow them to manipulate our media companies? How about abolish the FBI? Yeah, right. I mean, and the FBI. It, it, so one of the things that bothers me is we had, so, uh, okay. So with big tech censorship is that you had a lot of conservatives say, you know, what's great? Trust busting, right? Yeah. Teddy Roosevelt, man, that was great. Bring back Teddy and, you know, Trump and other sorts of national conservative types got into that. And I was always like, you know, this is, this is playing with the devil's uh, tools, guys. We should, we should avoid that. We got to throw the one ring into the fire and not, uh, not, uh, not use it against uh, Mordor, if you will. And what it turned out was, oh, wow, a lot of big tech censorship was actually a function and arm of the government in the first place. We never need these regulations. All we needed to do was stop the 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 executive agencies from infiltrating, <laughs> it, uh, you know, multimedia companies and trying to manipulate them. I mean, it really makes you wonder, like, what's going on behind the scenes at Google and YouTube and Facebook. And I mean, right? I mean, it it, can't, to it, me, it doesn't make me wonder. It doesn't make. Yeah, yeah. now <laughs> I know. Right. It, it should make the you know the the average normie wonder about that. Right. I mean. For sure. guys like us, we this was like no surprise. We we knew something like this was happening all along. If someone would have said, and this is this is the philosopher in me, if someone would have said to me, uh, "Did you know the FBI is has a special portal in Twitter where they can monitor and report tweets?" I'd be like, "Well, that's an extraordinary claim. I would like some extraordinary evidence, please." Right? We now have the evidence, right? So now we know this. Now, do we know this in other other companies? No, we do not. That said, if this is not something that's covered under current law. And I was the FBI. Of course, that's what I would do. So the same amount of rationality can be applied the other direction and suggest that that's probably, there's a very likely outcome. Yeah, it sets a bit of a precedent, right? Like, yeah. well, is Twitter that extraordinary of a company that, you know, these three-letter agencies wouldn't take a similar interest in all the other ones? Uh -huh. I mean, I think it's safe to assume, but obviously you're right. We, we, need, we need proof. But yeah, it has been fascinating to follow, to follow how, how all that stuff comes out. And also to see the journalists like Matt Taibbi and, and Barry Weiss and and uh, Michael Schellenberger all kind of being panned by mainstream journalists for doing real, real hard-hitting journalism. journalism. Yeah. yeah, that's been pretty ironic. Always appreciate that. You guys remember Biden's Hitler-esque speech? Yeah, where he called half of America, you know, terrorists. Basically, oh, that was so terrifying. That, that got that. kind of memory hold. 
You know? Didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, after after four years of hearing that Trump was Hitler and that he was going to, you know, demonize whatever marginalized group you want to point to, Biden gives a speech like that and and we're supposed to just act like it didn't happen. Was that the ultra mega? That, that was the... Uh, or was that just an invention of the media? Well, that, that was something that he did say, but I don't know that he said it at this speech. You, oh, okay. you know the one though, right? Where he appears in front of an Independence Hall with the red uplighting yes. and the two Marines in the back. <laughs> and it's very militaristic and just looks very authoritarian, like yeah. straight up something out of Orwell or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah from, like Big Brother. from the aesthetics point of view, especially. That's oh, what yeah. was amazing about that moment. It was so memeable. But I mean, right? even I mean, if like, like, I want to know what was going on in that back room with the aesthetics director. like, I have this vision. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do red. So who was the ad wizard that came up with that? Have one? you guys ever seen Empire Strikes Back? We're going for that. Like, that's what we're trying to empire strikes back. That's absolutely. Yeah, I mean, but if you pull up like the words of that speech, too, it was yeah. terrifying. Yeah. I mean, oh, dude. Totally. Yeah, like, I, I don't know if Jamie, can you pull that up? I, I mean, <laughs> like, I, I mean, we should we should like try and read some of that stuff. Like, we should have like come prepared for that. But well, next time yeah. that could be yeah. part of the intro. Maybe yeah. just a little bit of Biden. Mm. Yeah. Yes. With pull some select quotes, something that like really sets the theme. Yeah. Yeah. With like the Imperial March playing. Yes. All right. Our 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 friend Griff over here has is our our Jamie. My fellow Americans, that's a little boring. Move on. We are nothing alike, Joe Biden. What are you talking about? We are not fellows. You've been in the Senate. That's pretty sexist of Joe Biden to say fellow American. (laughs) You've been in the Senate since Reconstruction. (laughs) What are we we talking about here? We're not the fellows. We're completely different species. My gender non-specific Americans. (laughs) (laughs) That is is strangely misogynistic of him. Oh, yeah. Wow. Never never thought of that. It's almost like he's old and out of touch. (laughs) This is going to be good. Oh, boy. I don't even know where to start here. Okay, so he's basically like, okay, so we are all the heirs of the American experiment that began uh, two centuries ago. And then in so many sentences later says, Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. So, like, we're all heirs, but, like, but fuck Donald Trump and, like, half the country. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we don't need to read this, but my fellow Americans, except for you guys, except for half of half of everyone. Well, and that's that's always that's the contradiction of nationalism, right? Nationalism is the idea that we are if we all um, had a common identity and came together, we would have a more meaningful civil experience, right? But in practice, what nationalism always does is say we are the real ones, and you guys are the outsiders. And that's why it always turns on itself. It always becomes Maoist of sorts, where it's always like looking for the person that isn't part of the civic life and trying to find and persecute that person or group of people out of existence. Now, the good expressions of nationalism, and especially in civic nationalism in America, are relatively benign, right? It's like I generally support my the local police when they're getting the person who's breaking windows, puts them in jail, right? The, the bat where it really turns bad because, you know, nationalism is a natural part of human nature, it really turns bad is where you get into that place of those kind of articulations of saying like, we are all one thing and we all do everything together. And then eventually that just triggers that common sense of like, well, we're not all one thing and we're all very different. How do we, how do we reconcile these things until eventually it goes like, well, we're all one thing except for those guys. Right. It eventually just narrows the window of acceptable views uh-huh. right down to, well, I mean, to the point where I guess it eats itself right in That's its right. entirety. That's right. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, I'm just I'm just scrolling through the speech, and you know he basically ra- ra- rails against MAGA America for like a whole I don't know paragraph after paragraph after, after paragraph. You know what else we didn't really cover was the retirement of the highest paid bureaucrat in American history. Who that Fauci? Fauci. He kind of just slipped out the back door, didn't he? I mean, do you think do you think anything's going to come? I guess it won't because the Senate would be the body to investigate him. But like, I know Rand Paul was chomping at the bit to do that. If the Republicans got a majority in the Senate, but yeah, there was a part of the compromise for speaker had something to do with a church committee. Let me see here. A church style committee will be convened to look into the weaponization of FBI and other government organizations. Ooh, that, I think that has more to do with Twitter. Um, I mean, that seems positive though. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and I think it's a positive stuff for the house to do specifically. Ooh, one other thing is number four of the of the commissions. What I forgot to talk about was bills presented in Congress will be single subject, not omnibus, with all attendee earmarks, and there'll be a seventy two hour minimum period to read them, which is a huge win. Okay, that's wait. a great win. Okay, wait, let's let's go back to this because I think this is actually really key. What what are the major concessions that were made to get Kevin McCarthy elected speaker? Yeah, and this is this is as reported by Zero Hedge, so. Great assault. I, the gray lady. Completely, yeah. trust, completely trustworthy. <laughs> I totally agree. I love these guys. Uh, so it, uh, so they're, they're reintroducing the Jeffersonian Amendment motion, which is basically a motion that any member can make to say, I don't think this person should be speaker anymore. Almost every deliberative body in the world has that. We got rid of it. You know, because, because oh, because Justin Amash used it on Boehner, and then Boehner got rid of it forever after the next time he came in. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Uh, church style committee on the FBI, uh, presumably CIA and subject of organizational church committee against the American people. That's interesting. Uh, term limits will be put Wait, up for a vote, that? which what, is totally what's, what's that last one mean? Oh, so that's the church style, uh, um, committee to be convened to look into weaponization of the FBI and other government organizations. And I think that will be everything from Donald Trump, you know, being raided at Mar-a-Lago to, uh, hopefully Twitter files and type stuff like that. Can you explain the context of church style? So I don't actually remember that. I I, I know like a church commission, that, that was a, a congressman, right? Some, somebody church. Yes, and it has to do with government corruption. I think it was Hardin or- Jamie, will you look up the uh, the <laughs> root commission? of the term church commission? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other we one is- We should just start calling him Griff though. I mean, yeah, we don't want to give Jamie credit for Griff's hard work. There we go. I like it. Uh, so uh, three is term limits will be put up for a vote which is dumb because the Supreme court said term limits have to be a constitutional amendment anyways. Okay. Uh, that was 1996 or four or five somewhere in there. Oh really? Yep. Interesting. Yeah. Contract for America guys. I'm going to learn so much doing this. <laughs> contract for America. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So one of his things was uh, congressional term limits and yeah. they, they built a Republican majority out of it. They passed it. Bill Clinton signed it into law. And then the Supreme court said, no, you can't do that. You gotta have a, a constitutional amendment to do it. Wow. Yeah, which is pretty wild, right? I mean, <laughs> that is. I mean, what's the what's the basis for that? Do we know? I, I, I don't. I don't remember what the actual judicial interpretation was. Uh, we'll have to. I never looked at it. Look into that. Okay. Uh, for bills presented in Congress to be single subject, not omnibus, which is great, with all attendant earmarks, which is great because attendant earmarks. That's where it says we're spending money on you know this new program here, right, or a new bridge or whatever. So that was. A stipulation of the Freedom Caucus yes. to give the votes to Kevin McCarthy. Yes. Okay. That's why it's so important. That's awesome. Um, uh, the Texas border plan will be put before Congress. What is the what is the Texas All right, border plan? So it's a typical Republican thing. I'm going to... Okay, my brothers, my, my Republican friends. 
You cannot solve the immigration problem with just more border enforcement. I'm sorry. It's a it's a it's a militaristic utopian idea that if you just put enough tanks on the border, all of a sudden you're gonna you're not gonna have legal illegal immigrants. That's not how it works. But basically, that's what it looks like. It is. It's fixed border enforcement policies, enforce laws uh, in the interior, and target cartels and criminal organizations. Whatever that means. Um, we should definitely talk about immigration sometime. Uh, six uh, COVID mandates will be f- uh, will be ended as well as funding for them. So that's great. Um, not exactly sure. I, I especially know that's true when it comes to house rules. Uh, one of the things, if you go to DC right now, uh, you can't actually go visit your member. You got to set up an appointment and then you have to have a staffer come out and get you and then escort you in. Sorry about that. Is that my fault? No, that was an airdrop from Griff. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was in all of our headphones. <laughs> That'll be on the recording. <laughs> we need to get you a mic, dude. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot better way to do it. Just like ding, ding, ding. We got mail from Griff. It's like Blues Clues. It is, dude. <laughs> that's great. We need to play the Blues Clues music for this. Uh, COVID, uh, and then lastly, budget bills will stop the endless increases in the debt ceiling and hold the Senate accountable for the same. I'm not sure what that means. So the debt ceiling is a different calculus, right? So the debt, it's like the government issues its own debt limit. It says like, here's our credit card and our credit card limits $8,000, right? If you got a city. And then it's like, well, actually we got American Express Plus now. So it's now 10,000 and it's now 20,000. That's what the debt ceiling is functionally. Uh, what's happened is they've pretty much automatically done a debt ceiling increase with uh, continuing resolutions where what they used to do is two separate acts. Because then, then what was great for that for conservatives is they could bid against it. They could hold the debt ceiling increase so they can get concessions on spending. Uh, they kind of gave that up after uh, Paul Ryan and sequestration, all that stuff. So That's a deeper history than I ever yeah. thought I would need to know. <laughs> Sorry. Guys. But I like it. No, it's good. Nerdy. Nerd. <laughs> I need a nerd button. Okay. So it looks like the church commission was convened around Watergate. Oh. In 1973, the Senate Watergate committee investigation revealed that the executive branch, blah, blah, blah. It looks like, yeah, chair, the chairman of the Senate select committee to study governmental operations with respect to intelligence activities was chaired by Frank church, a Democrat from Idaho. Hmm. Um, so it looks like it just has origins in the seventies sense yep thanks griff <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Man, we got a good we got good support here I this like is it. great yeah. we just need a big tv now so we can put up stuff yeah we do need a big tv well i guess we got that mm-hmm. probably rope that in I mean, there's gonna be a lot of editing for me on this <laughs> podcast episode man it's gonna be great i mean part of me is like yeah just just fuck it we'll do it live yeah you know, i just think put it out. the more organic the better yeah, yeah actually for sure yeah you'll get more uh traction doing it that way probably will I mean, eventually I could see us doing a live stream if, if anybody ever wanted to tune in to listen to three dudes blather about politics. And there's actually a lot of really interesting stuff. You you are illuminating a lot of really interesting things. Thanks. And I'm like trying to take notes as they're coming up. because I'm like, we need to do a whole episode on that and a whole episode on that. And yeah. Can't do it. And I hope I'm getting everything right. I'm doing it off the cuff, off the top of my head, but I think I'm all right. Well, I, the one thing you can trust the internet to do is correct you when you're wrong. Yeah, right. So right. Don't worry about <laughs> you gotta that. Get more careful. The internet is undefeated. <laughs> <laughs> so I hear. Well, sweet. Um, are there any other? You guys want to, uh, you know, proffer some interesting predictions for the coming year? Or oh man, inter- uh, predictions. I'm not okay. So one, Montana legislation going to have an awesome legislative session. I'm telling you, uh, that's just a work prediction. Um, God, I. I don't know, guys. It's so hard to predict. I think I think crypto will have a better year this year. I think we're we're seeing the bottom of the bear. We'll we'll get some more investment in crypto here soon. Um, that's what I'm both hoping for and predicting. What do you think about the broader economy? 
I don't, I think we're stagflation for the foreseeable future. We have to, I mean, the interest rate raises were there, but I don't know if they're substantial enough. Obviously, you're the economist, so you could give me better prognosis, prog, better diagnosis of where we're at. I mean, I, yeah, I think we're, we're definitely going to be in a recession. Uh, you know, most economists are admitting to this now. I think we had the beginning officially of this recession last year that they were denying. It's most, most forecasts for 2023 are calling for a mild recession, which means it's going to probably be a severe recession. And I, I don't foresee it being quick or easy. Um, I, I think we're, we're seeing the end of a, of a long trend of American dominance. And it doesn't mean that America is not going to ever come back, but for at least a little while, there's going to be a lot of pain here. And, um, I don't know that I would agree on, you know, your crypto prediction, but I don't really, you know, markets will, will determine for themselves. But, um, you know, I, I think the, the whole crypto space is, uh, you know, something that a lot of libertarians glommed onto as this supposedly free market, uh, invention when I, I would, I would posit that it was actually a more of a symptom of the bubble uh, rather than a cause to the bubble. Um, so if the bubble's popping, then the crypto is going to continue to pop with it would be my prediction on that. And, uh, but you know, uh, predictions are rather meaningless. Everybody can, can have one. Doesn't mean if I say that it's going to be right. So, well, I have a prediction. Yeah that this podcast will exist by the end of 2023. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Woo. That we can control, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. And if it does, assuming it does, uh, we'll get to follow up and see if your prediction was correct. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. David? I just hope I'm right. That's all. Yeah. Uh. Now, I, I, I think uh, this next year, it should, be a, it should be a crazy year when it comes to politics. Um, I think there's going to be a substantial amount of, we have a substantial amount of room to grow as a libertarian movement on the educational inflation thing. I hope that's what people focus on. I hope that we can break the existing, um, and if I, I guess I'm turning into what should we do in this next year as a movement, which might be a more interesting question for me, something I actually know something about. Is, uh, <laughs> right, yeah, that's a better question. Yeah. Is, is what can we, because predictions are rather like a passive sort of thing. It's like, oh, what do you think is going to happen? It's like, what are we going to do? Right, right. What are we going to do to make Let's make reframe it. Yeah, happen. let's call it uh, resolutions, political resolutions Ooh, for yeah. the new year, right? For the liberty or, movement. Not even necessarily political, but just, yeah. I like it for like, for the movement, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, or maybe personally, if you guys want to give those. Sure. Um, the focusing on breaking the Ukraine bubble of like articulating the time horizon larger. I think that's priority number one, the priority number two. Actually articulate the cause of inflation it's in, its, in its solution. It's very real political solution. And, and nailing the Fed and the federal budget process to the wall on those things. And, uh, um, man, if we can accomplish those two things in a single year, that would be an incredible feat. Uh, and remember that the biggest movements in politics from a libertarian standpoint have often not happened because libertarian actors did them, but rather that we changed the ideal landscape. We eliminated the opposition through debate, through open and honest debate. Uh, and by equipping people with the best arguments. And hopefully that's what this podcast contributes to is giving people the best arguments, the best understanding of the new cycle so that they can engage and uh, kind of filter out bottom up in society, those ideas. I completely agree with that. And I think that's maybe a great place to wrap. Awesome. Yeah. Good job, guys. Episode yeah. one in the books. Yeah. 
Nice. nice. <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see if there's a number two. Follow Liberty Portal on Twitter at Liberty Portal. Yes. Like, subscribe, share. Like, subscribe, share, you and review it. this podcast on wherever you get your <laughs> podcast information. Uh, see you next time. Bye bye. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to the Liberty Portal podcast. For more episodes, news, and Liberty focused content, visit libertyportal.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you liked what you heard on the show, we appreciate you sharing it with your friends and giving us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Thank you.